Well, hello everyone, it's Jason here. I'm one of the pastors at The Way Church, and I wanna welcome you to today's sermon. I don't know where you find yourself, but it's a delight for our team whenever we hear stories of people being strengthened in their walk with God, discovering more about Jesus and his word through these messages. So just wanted to say hello before we jump in and hope that you enjoy. Good morning. It's me again. <laughs> I'm Chris. And in the talk this morning, I want to do three things. First, I want to give you a partial primer on the Christian view of marriage and sex. Second, in light of the Christian view of marriage, I want to explore the painful nature of adultery. And third, I want to discuss how Jesus applies this commandment to all of us which means we have to talk about lust and pornography. So if you're a kid 12 and under, this might not be the talk for you. It's a hard topic, but I think it can lead to an encounter with the grace of God if we stay until the end, but you don't have to. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are so good to us. Thank you that you're so gracious toward us. Thank you that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. Thank you that when we come to you, no matter what we're carrying, you don't turn us away. And even when you say hard things to us, we can trust your heart is for us. And you want life and flourishing for us. So help us trust that and believe that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I told you what we're going to be doing. Uh, and here's the first thing I want to talk about. A primer on a Christian view of marriage and sex. And so four points. This is four points within the first point. Uh, number one, marriage is a covenant in Scripture. And I want to quote to you from the book of Malachi. Listen to these words. The prophet is speaking and says, The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. So here in this passage, marriage is called a covenant. And a covenant is a binding agreement between two parties or people involving a public ceremony. And in scripture, to establish a covenant, there would be the sacrifice of animals, and both parties would walk through the entrails of the animals. And I recognize the cultural difference here and how upsetting this is to us. But in doing so, both parties involved were saying to one another, let me be like these animals if I fail to keep my promise to you. I would rather die than break my promise to you. 
So number one, marriage is a covenant, a public ceremony and serious commitment made before God and two parties, often involving witnesses. We often say like this, for better or worse, in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow, I will love and cherish you and be faithful to you alone as long as we both shall live. That's what we commit to, which means marriage is less about finding the one and more about becoming the one, becoming someone who can love another sacrificially for a lifetime. This is a covenantal marriage in scripture. It's not for the faint of heart, right? Let me be like these animals if I break my promise to you. Number two, the foundational text for marriage in scripture is Genesis 2 verses 23 and 24. And so when the Pharisees pull Jesus into a debate about divorce in Matthew 19, verses 5 and 6, he quotes this scripture saying this, Haven't you read that in the beginning the Creator made them male and female? Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer, they are no longer two, but one flesh. And so Jesus responds to this question about divorce by teaching on marriage. And by quoting this passage, Jesus is telling us that God made us male and female in his image and likeness, worthy of dignity and value and respect. And that marriage between a man and a woman is God's design. It's not just a union of two distinct but complementary human beings, you know, designed for one another. It's a sort of reunion. They were made from one another, for one another, in the logic of Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be wedded to his wife. And God's goal is oneness, one flesh, in the union. To say it in modern terms, a married couple is to be one financially, legally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Now, sex within marriage becomes like a seal of this covenant, the consummation of the covenant. And continued sex within marriage is like an act of covenantal renewal. And so we're saying with our bodies, we belong to one another. We're one. We're symbolizing with our bodies what's meant to be true in the rest of our lives. I'm not using you. This is not simply a bodily transaction or a performance. There's no grading or scorecard. We're not just meeting a physical need. I'm recommitting myself to you. That sex is communicating our oneness, our commitment to one another. And let me just come at this another way. Our bodies communicate. Like through our bodies, through our eyes, through our actions, we can communicate our emotions, we can communicate our anger, we can communicate our affection. Our bodies can tell the truth, and our bodies can tell lies. And in Christianity, our bodies are very good. God made bodies. God became a body. Bodies are good. Jesus is God embodied. Jesus is God incarnate, the eternal son of God with skin on. Jesus is the true human and the new human in Christian theology. So what does Jesus, what truth does Jesus tell us about love with his body? What truth does Jesus tell us about love with his body? 
referencing the work of Christopher West, an author and theologian. Jesus' body tells us that love is free, that Jesus gives his life freely, that love is a free choice, a free choice that binds itself to one another. We learn that love is total. Jesus gives his life completely. He holds nothing back. Jesus tells us love is faithful. He gives his life in devotion to his bride, the church. And Jesus tells us love is fruitful. He gives his life to produce spiritual children, members of God's family who grow in spiritual maturity or fruitfulness. And so Jesus communicates all of this through the giving of his body. That Jesus, through his body, tells us that love is free, total, faithful, and fruitful. Love is not God. God is love, and God defines love. And this is what love does. These are the truths about love that Jesus tells us with the giving of his body. And marriage as a covenant takes this type of love seriously. It's meant to safeguard the nature of love. And sex belongs in the marital covenant to reinforce the nature of love that Jesus displays for us. My body is given freely. My body is given totally. My body is given exclusively. And in principle, my body is given in a way that's open to children and family that children are not incidental or accidental to sex, that Lord willing, health, circumstances, and vocation permitting, it's part of God's design for marriage and sex, free, total, faithful, fruitful. And marriage and sex within marriage is meant to point beyond itself to the unbreakable love of God for his people, which leads to the next point, number three, Marriage is a portrait or a picture in Scripture of God's relationship with his people or Jesus' relationship with the church. That every wedding is meant to be a window into the divine romance that God has with his people. And the same is meant to be true of marriage. That God is like the husband and his people are the bride. When talking about marriage, the Apostle Paul writes, quote, This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And so one of the fundamental purposes of marriage is to point toward the union that Christ has sought with his people. That marriage is meant to be a picture of God's free, total, faithful, and fruitful love until God renews all things, which leads to number four. For there's no marriage in heaven, which is a bummer for some of us. (laughs) I send my talks to Daryl for feedback, and he gave me encouragement, but he also said, I don't like this one, (laughs) which is very sweet. (laughs) And I'm sure you'll still have a special relationship with your spouse in heaven. But Jesus did say this. He said in Matthew 22, verse 30, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. And so marriage is like a picture of Jesus's love for the church. It's a picture or a signpost that's no longer necessary once we've arrived at the destination that it was pointing toward. To quote Christopher Yoon, Marriage's true aim is to point people toward the ultimate and eternal reality of Christ in the church. 
Marriage is only a momentary shadow. Christ and the church are the perfect and everlasting reality. This means marriage can't be ultimate. Like we can't look to marriage to give us love and hope and healing that only God can give. If I look at another person and say, save me, heal me, fix me, be the light of my world in the center of my universe, be my God, I will be disappointed. I will put the weight of deity or the weight of salvation on the shoulders of my partner and it will crush the relationship. Now, marriage is temporary, not eternal. And this is like a partial with emphasis on the word partial, so much left out, a partial primer on a biblical theology of marriage and sex. And now we're ready to at least glimpse the serious nature of adultery in Scripture. And so point two, do not commit adultery. Let me define adultery. Adultery is a sexual relationship or encounter between someone who's married and a person they're not married to. And so adultery is an act that undermines the covenant of marriage. Adultery breaks covenant. Uh, we believe that the way divorce is permitted, not required, but permitted in cases of adultery by Scripture. That adultery doesn't have to end a marriage, but it sometimes does. And no matter the outcome, it harms spouses. It can harm children. It can tear apart families and therefore fray the fabric of society. And I've seen it happen to friends. I've watched their lives be ripped apart, their hearts left in tatters. The look of disbelief and confusion tattooed on my brain. Their lives aren't ruined. No person has the power to ruin your life. But a version of your life is ruined. And God can help pick up the pieces and form a different redemptive story through tears and pain. But a version of your life is gone and it's replaced with deep loss and sadness. A future that felt set, at least in a general sense, is wide open again. You might be forced to relive a season of life you've already passed through. There's a sense of going backwards instead of forwards, a sense of years being stolen. You wake up a stranger to your own life, at least for a time, and I get so angry thinking about it. And then I get so sad, so sad. And sometimes the marriage can be repaired by the grace of God. Those are beautiful stories, but sometimes not. And we wouldn't put, if you were a victim of adultery, the burden of trying to fix it on you while you're still reeling from the heartache and heartbreak of betrayal. Adultery breaks the marital covenant. It can legitimately end the marriage in Scripture. It doesn't always. But sometimes it does. And I'm so sorry if you've gone through it. Adultery involves your body in lying to your spouse and often lying to the person you're sleeping with. 
however good it feels, it is a counterfeit love. You are not free. You are bound to another. You are not faithful. You belong to another. The love is not total. You're committed to another. It's not fruitful. You're not making a family. You're breaking a family. It's not the fruit of the Spirit. It's the work of the flesh. It's a counterfeit love. We're lying with our bodies to others, but we're also lying about God. When a husband and wife are faithful to one another in body and soul, they embody the covenantal nature of God who keeps his vows to his people. To quote Peter J. Lethart, by keeping the seventh word, we dramatize the good news of Jesus, the bridegroom of the church, who gives himself in utter fidelity to and for his bride. That's what faithfulness in marriage, a marriage that goes the miles, preaches to the world. But sexual infidelity preaches a false gospel to the world, as if God could cheat on his people. It puts another false god before Yahweh. It fails to bear his name. It takes his name in vain. And so God pleads with his people, hey, do not commit adultery. Instead, love God and neighbor if you want it positively. Love God and neighbor. This is what it looks like. And if you're married, your closest neighbor is your spouse. Love him. Love her. Freely, totally, faithfully, fruitfully. I know this topic can trigger like a wide range of emotions. And so maybe we just need to take a deep breath and ground ourselves in the love of God again. And remind ourselves that God has not forsaken us. Whether you've committed adultery or been a victim of it, I felt led to share with you the words of Francis Buford that have meant a lot to me because I think they capture the spirit of Christ. And he wrote these words on the screen. Don't be afraid, says Yeshua, Jesus. Far more can be mended than you know. Perfect love casts out fear, but don't be afraid, says Jesus. Far more can be mended than you know. Far more can be mended than you know. And so let's keep that in mind as we move to point three. And look at how Jesus applies this commandment to all of us. Once again, I wish Jesus did not do this. But I don't get to control Jesus. So... He said this, he said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of body or your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And scholars debate this, but when Jesus references hell here, it's the Greek word Gehenna. And some think it might be referencing the Valley of Hinnom outside of Jerusalem. And they think he's borrowing imagery from like a smoking garbage dump in the valley outside of the walls of Jerusalem. 
where refuse was always burnt. In other words, it's like Jesus is saying, if you want your life to look like a smoldering garbage dump outside the walls of God's city, indulge habitually, continually, in contempt for and lust toward other humans. More than that, when contempt and lust are given full reign in our world, it turns the world into a hellish place. Lighting God's design on fire leads to a smoldering heap of ruins. And so Jesus, in love, he intensifies the command. He moves from external obedience to an internal reality. He doesn't do away with the law. He drives it deeper. We mow over weeds. Jesus wants to pull up the roots. And so Jesus goes after lust. Adultery doesn't happen apart from lust. And to be clear, a lustful look is not being attracted to someone. A lustful look is not the same as noticing or appreciating beauty. Lust can be distinct from sexual desire and a longing for intimacy and connection. That connection and intimacy are God-given desires. Desires that God meets in a variety of ways through a variety of relationships. But lust is different. Lust is a sexual gaze, almost like a greedy gaze that seeks to consume another person with our eyes. And the Greek word translated as lust is epithemio. It means a strong desire or longing. But there's possessive undertones to the idea. At the heart of the word is the idea of taking. Right? At the center of God's nature is giving. At the center of all good sex is giving. But at the center of lust is taking. Lust says, I have to have, I must have what I see for my own gratification. And in this way, lust transforms people into objects that are used. Like contempt, lust is dehumanizing. Like contempt, lust undermines the value and worth of every human being, it ignores that every person is made in the image and likeness of God, worthy of dignity, value, and respect. Just gonna take a sip of water before I talk about porn. Um, during the early stages of the pandemic, during the span of several months, the New York Times reported that a website allowing people to sell pornographic images of themselves grew from 120,000 contributors to well over a million, flooding an already saturated porn market. And the end result, one person's naked, exposed body was not worth very much on the open market. In other words, humanity is both objectified and cheapened through porn use, literally. Like lust, porn objectifies and dehumanizes humanity. I once heard it said by a priest, the problem is not that porn shows too much. The problem is porn shows too little. That porn flattens a person to be loved and respected into a mere picture or image 
to be used and exploited. The person in the picture is a son or a daughter. The person in the video is a son or a daughter. The person might be a mother or a father, a sister or a brother, real people with real stories and real struggles. They were once a little boy or a little girl, and they didn't grow up dreaming about being a porn star. Something happened to them. And we never know if the actors are using substances just to get through the acts that most people would find degrading. And it later comes out that many were using drugs just to cope, to deal with the physical and emotional pain while acting like they enjoyed the acts they were filming. And to use porn, to enjoy porn, you've got to ignore all of this. In other words, you have to dehumanize the person or actors in your heart. If you go on Fight the New Drug, which is a non-religious organization dedicated to porn, it says, you know, study after study has found that the frequency of porn consumption correlates with depression, anxiety, stress, and other social problems. That porn consumption influences consumers' sexual preferences, leaving them wanting what they've seen online and less satisfied with real sex with real people. There's also a greater desire for sex without emotional involvement. The impact of pornography also includes negative attitudes towards women, decreased empathy for victims of sexual violence, and an increase in dominating and sexually imposing behavior. Love is free, total, faithful, fruitful, according to Jesus. Porn kills love. The Department of Justice and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children recognizes that pornography is an element that adds to the serious problem of sex trafficking. So porn consumption is bad for mental health, it's bad for our relationships, it's bad for our world, it's connected to lust and adultery. So given all this, why is it still so prevalent? Well, it's common and lucrative, and when something is common and lucrative, it often leads to, you know, ignoring it or denying how damaging it is. But porn also meets a deeper need in a temporary fashion. Not only is porn addictive, it's often connected to deeper longings for intimacy, connectedness, and love and validation. It can also be a band-aid or an escape from pain or fear or insecurity. We've probably all heard drug users describe their drug of choice as like a warm hug. Right? It brings comfort and escape from deeper pain. Porn is like a drug, a fleeting warm hug to mask our loneliness. It brings temporary relief, but not what our soul is truly after. We want real love, not counterfeits. And I definitely saw porn as a teenager, not in my home, but at my friend's home. He had one of those boxes with a lot of channels. But during my formative years, I never saw or searched out pornography on a computer. And I know that sounds strange. I didn't see pornography on a computer until I was 18 years old. And I didn't grow up with a smartphone. So to this day, as far as I can recollect, 
I've never searched out pornography. I've never had to confess porn use to my wife. I did have to confess sexual promiscuity in a general sense before I married her from my past. It was very difficult and very hurtful for her. And I still have to battle lust. But my story with porn is very rare. It's increasingly rare. Like we work with a lot of young pastors and you know, most young pastors I meet have battled or continue to battle an indulgence in or temptation toward pornography. It's part of their story. They grew up in the age of the smartphone. They grew up in the thick of it all, men and women. And so forgive me if I sound pessimistic, but I usually assume that a lot of people are struggling with porn. If not with porn, they're battling lust. And that means you're not alone. And you're not outside of God's grace. And it means you'll never experience a shocked face from our pastoral staff. And the good news for us this morning is not just forgiveness. The good news is also freedom. The good news is many experience significant healing and freedom. I know so many of them. Many are pastors, right? Past struggles and present temptations don't define our lives, ministries, or marriages, present or future. There is freedom in Jesus, but we can't fight it alone. That's why we have things like freedom sessions. It's why we believe in counseling. It's why we you know, believe in accountability software and relationships. There is forgiveness, but there is also freedom if we take the struggle as seriously as Jesus does. And so let me give you a thought experiment that I'm sure will be as popular as the entirety of this talk. And I learned it from an older woman who I disagree with on almost everything. But the scenario she unpacked hit me hard. And she was asked, you know, how do you overcome habitual sin and lust? And she said something like, well, what if I told you I would give you a billion dollars to avoid pornography for the next year? What would you do? Like, what safeguards would you set up? If temptation was too much, would you, you know, too much on your phone, would you get rid of it? Of course you would, because a billion dollars makes it worth it. The reality is most of us know exactly what we would do if the prize was a billion dollars. So what we really mean when we say, how do I avoid pornography, is is there some way to live the same and gain a different result so as to both avoid porn and inconvenience? And I think the answer is no. The same behavior will never produce different results. Then she says this, quote, until we hate sin like death, treat it like cancer, and see holiness as a billion-dollar prize, we won't take the necessary steps. We can't flee sexual immorality while feeding it. We can't pray sin away while tempting it. I've seen men and women trade in smartphones for flip phones, get into accountability groups, and remove sources of temptation so that they can then go after the deeper reasons why they were seeking out porn in the first place. And there's always those deeper reasons. But there's a logic there, because why fight a temptation tomorrow that you can eliminate today? 
Jesus says, cut off that hand if it causes you to stumble. Take less seriously. And so he takes the commandment about adultery that speaks to some of us and turns it into a conversation about lust that addresses all of us. A conversation that holds up a mirror to all of our lives and how we view humanity. How we treat one another as image bearers of God precious to him. And so let me just end by reading to you a story. An encounter between Jesus and some religious leaders. Listen to this story. John chapter 8. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped and wrote in the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This story might be better named the story of some men caught in hypocrisy. Takes two people to commit adultery. The man is noticeably absent. Only the woman is dragged before Jesus. They're trying to trap him. Torah says stone adulterers. But Roman law says capital punishment can only be administered by the Roman state. Say no, Jesus doesn't uphold the Jewish law. Say yes, Jesus breaks the Roman law. Either way, he stands accused. Instead, Jesus says nothing. He stoops down and he writes in the dirt. And we're not told what he writes. But every detail in the Gospel of John is intentional. Where, where is the one other place in Scripture where something is written with God's own finger? The Ten Commandments. Here is God incarnate writing with his finger again. And many commentators think he is writing the Ten Commandments in the sand. He's holding up the commandments like a mirror, all of the Ten Commandments. And then he says these words, that any of you who are without sin throw the first stone. And one by one, people leave, the oldest leaving first. And Jesus says to the woman, has anyone condemned you? No, no one, sir. Then I don't condemn you either. Go, leave your life of sin. There was one without sin in this encounter. There was one who could throw a stone. Right? Jesus, the sinless one. But he refused to do so. He didn't condemn her. Instead, he would be condemned in her place. Not just in her place, but in our place too. He would die for all of our law-breaking, for all of our sin, taking on all our guilt, removing all of our shame. And that's the good news of the gospel, and it's for each of us. 
And when we hear that, it's like we're moved, we're convicted. We might say, hey, no more porn, only purity, right? I'm going to leave lust behind. I'm going to conquer that habit. I'm going to recommit to chastity. No more. It's very interesting. Um, Matthew Perry, or Chandler from Friends, just passed away, and he wrote these words in his autobiography entitled, Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing, about his battle with addiction. And he wrote these words, very poignant. He said, God, please help me, I whispered. Show me that you're here, God. Please help me. I started to cry. I mean, I really started to cry, that shoulder-shaking kind of uncontrollable weeping. I wasn't crying because I was sad. I was crying because for the first time in my life, I felt okay. I felt safe. I felt taken care of. Decades of struggling with God and wrestling with life and sadness, all being washed away like a river of pain gone into oblivion. I had been in the presence of God. I was certain of it. At this time and this time, I had prayed for the right thing. Help. I stayed sober for two years based solely on that moment. God had shown me a sliver of what life could be. He saved me that day. And we could have a breakthrough encounter with Jesus like that today because we cry out help. Or maybe not. Maybe we just hear the thought experiment and say, yeah, I know what to do. I'm not condemned, but I'm going to go and leave and sin no more. But then two years later, but then two months later, but then four days later, we find ourselves in the same place, but feeling even more defeated. And I want to speak to you, not you right now, but you two years from now, two months from now, four days from now, you've relapsed, which is always a part of recovery, but it feels worse because of the height from which you've fallen. You've been dragged before the courtroom of your own conscience. You feel weighed down with condemnation. You don't need anyone to throw rocks at you. You're throwing stones at yourself and you're ready to quit, to give up, to give up on the fight. I want you to know that Jesus is here with you today, but he will be there with you tomorrow or two years from now, or two months from now, and his eyes will be filled with love and compassion. He wants you to know more can be mended than you thought was possible. You didn't ask to see porn at age 11. If that's true, he knows that. Like, you didn't know what it would do to your neural pathways. It will take time for your brain to heal. He knows that too. New patterns of thought and living take time. Freedom is not like a switch we flip. It's a direction we move toward by the power of the Holy Spirit. And God's word is a compass. It provides direction. It shows us where we need to be headed. The word of God, the power and presence of the Holy Spirit and the support of God's people help us get there. And on the journey, Jesus looks at us and says to us, I don't condemn you. I was condemned for you on the cross. Stop beating yourself up. I already took that beating. Toxic shame never healed anyone. Shame off of you, says the cross. Yes, leave your life of sin. Like, I want to give you something better in its place. Follow me out of adultery and lust into life that is truly life. What lust has stolen from you, from you my, my love wants to restore. So let's remind ourselves of that reality and that fact 
this morning. Let's remind ourselves that his body was given to us. And in a world filled with lies, with his body, he tells us the truth. The truth about God and the truth about love. That God's love is free and it is total and it is faithful and it is fruitful and it is for us and it can restore us and make us new. More can be mended than we know. So why don't we stand to our feet and the communion team and band and prayer team can come. So Holy Spirit, we just surrender this time to you, this space to you. And we shut out and we send away any kind of lying, deceiving spirits, any spirit of condemnation, any unholy spirit that's not from you, we send away from this place in Jesus' name. And we lock the door on anything that's not from you in this moment. And we say, Holy Spirit, come and move and minister to us in our need, in our point of pain, in our sorrow, in our longing for newness. Come meet with us today. We surrender this time to you knowing it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, knowing you would never turn us away when we come humbly and with need. So may that hope rise up in our hearts this morning. Hope not just for forgiveness, but also for freedom and healing and restoration. Through your word, by your spirit, with the help of your people. Well, I want to thank you for listening to today's sermon. I'm Jason. I'm one of the pastors at The Way Church. And if you want to find out more about what's going on in the life of our church or how to get connected more deeply, you can go to thewaychurch.ca. We're so encouraged to hear stories about how these messages have been strengthening people in their walk with God, drawing them deeper in their relationship with Him and in His Word. And so this is love from our team to you. Hope you're doing well today and love to hear from you.